History happened everywhere. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge? Find the fascinating, uncover the unexpected, and share the stories. You're listening to... History happened everywhere. Hello and welcome to History Happened Everywhere. My name is Ryan Weir and I am here in the HHE studio with the saddle to my pony. It's Mr. Peter Goddard. Pony, Ryan. That is rhyming slang you may or may not be aware for. For what? Well, pony and trap is the full line. Right. And it's something you might be full of, but I'll <laughs> say you no more. This is a family podcast. Oh my goodness. Look, I have this apple on the palm of my hand. and Right, Peter, last week, the Dersolator, it randomised in your favour. It gave you hell or high water in Latvia during 2005 to 2010. Yes, I was absolutely buoyed with confidence after that role. I thought it's modern, I'm aware of Latvia as a country, hell or high water is an expression that I'm familiar with. I thought this would be dead easy. Yeah. It was not dead easy. Right, well, I guess it was more hell than high water. Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's get started, shall we? I want to know a bit about the country. So, I'll tell you everything. The Republic of Latvia, let me introduce you. It is one of the Baltic countries. These are the countries by the Baltic Sea in the kind of top right, if you will, of Europe. And they consist of Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania. Latvia being the uh, filling in the Baltic sandwich. So as a country, it's got Estonia to the north and Lithuania to the south. But it also touches Belarus to the southeast and it's got Russia to the east. Hmm. Uh, I've heard of them. Yes, it is a fact that um, made a big difference in their history, as we will discover. Okay. The capital city is Riga. This is known as the Paris of the North. Oh, really? That's nice. Uh, yeah, I should observe that there are eight other cities on Wikipedia claiming to be the Paris of the North. Oh, right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so there's some competition for this title, but they've got a strong claim. They've got one of the largest collections of Art Nouveau buildings in the world. Okay. They've got 800 buildings, and the whole city is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. The whole city. The whole city. Everything. The, the lot. Including the rundown bit of Even it. Even the sewers. Well, oh, Okay. Right, the language is, take a guess. Latvian? Correct. Latvian is one of the only two surviving Baltic languages, Latvian and Lithuanian, of the, I guess it's a family of uh, languages that only those two are left. Really? Yeah. What what, what have the others done then? Well, people don't speak them anymore, like similar to Celtic languages, right? There's some that are still going and some that are no longer with us. Right. They have a flag, unsurprisingly, these countries tend to. It's thick, dark, carmine red stripes and then a little smaller white stripe in the middle, sort of horizontal stripes. Right. Carmine red. Carmine red. Yes, that's okay. very specific when I read the description. <laughs> yeah, it's like a paint you might get, like a sunset Exactly. Yeah. Or... It's, a, it's a really dark... So when you think of a red of like the Red Cross flag, and it's much okay. darker than that. So it is it is worth making the, different, the exception, I suppose. All right. And I think we should all rise for the national anthem. Regal. Straight down the line, national anthem, isn't it? think of marching like could i march to it and i could march to this you could it would be intermittent steps <laughs> march that's step some, step that's some built-in rests for you step long step <laughs> <laughs> you may be waltzing at this point i'm not sure yeah. oh that's a nice bit of bugle bugle work i like this i'm feeling really patriotic 
Yeah, at the start, I thought it was middling, but I've been won over towards the end. Towards the end, yeah. I love that. That was great. Uh, Latvia is not an enormous country. It's 65,000 square kilometres, and it's 11% of a France. But yeah, you need 10 of them or thereabouts to make France. Uh, but the population is even smaller. There's less than 2 million Latvians. Mm. It's not many, is it? That's not many. And when I give you the list of famous Latvians, you're mm. going to think that is a country that's punching well above its weight, Latvian-wise. Okay. So here's some famous Latvians. Mikhail Baryshnikov. Right. Who you are familiar with from the ballet world. Why am I familiar with the ballet world? Have you never heard of Baryshnikov? No. Incredibly famous ballerina. Is it ballerina? Ballerist. Ballerina. What's <laughs> <laughs> a male ba- ballet dancer? I'm going to oh, stick okay. with that. So ballet dancer. Ballet dancer. Okay, fine. Okay, Good. I'll try another one. This is also cultural, so now I'm nervous. Right. Mark Rothko. Painter? Painter, exactly. Very famous painter. Was born in Riga, although he did move to the USA when he was 10 years old. Rothko paintings, they're the ones with the big squares? Yeah, they're kind of fuzzy-ish, often quite dark, moody pieces that I really like them, actually, and I'm not normally into that kind of thing. There's something about them that I find quite appealing. Yeah, he insisted that nobody else's paintings could be in the same space as his. That is one way to ensure full attention. Look at this! (laughs) You walk in the room because he was trying to create a space and that it would be a distraction. Ah. Mm. Rothko fact. You know you're Rothko. That's impressive. Yeah. Ask me a ballet fact. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, this next one I'm confident because this is movie related. Sergei Eisenstein. He was good. He was the guy who stuck his tongue out. Are you hilariously alluding to Einstein? (laughs) Oh... Eisenstein, the Soviet Union director of the battleship Potemkin. Yes. A very seminal movie, as you well know. Mm-hmm. The pram going down the stairs. Exactly so. And uh, the magazine Sight and Sound named it the 11th greatest film of all time. Mm. So well, those are all Latvians. That's pretty impressive for a little country with only 2 million people. Yeah, that's true. Now, famous Latvian things. Art Nouveau architecture, we've already discussed. 800 buildings in the Paris of the North. Yeah. They have also a very famous Latvian song and dance festival. And this okay. is one of the largest amateur call and dancing events in the world. Uh, so they've, they've had this since 1873. Okay. And uh, they put it on every five years or thereabouts. So it's not an annual thing. Uh, and about 40,000 performers participate. Out of two million. Uh, and I think people come from all around the world now. But uh, Oh, I see. Okay. But still, that's... Uh, Everyone has a good old sing-song. And it's kind of grown as a festival. It's got photography and art and craft as well. Mm-hmm. And there's a parade because there's always a parade, right? Yes, there is. Now, can I interest you in the widest waterfall in Europe? Yes. Well, let me tell you a bit more. This is Ventas Rumba, a rapid, on the Ventas River in Kuldiga. It's 249 metres wide. Okay. Widest in Europe. It's also uh, only a couple of metres tall. <laughs> and I'll be honest, there's a reason why we generally measure impressive waterfalls by height. Right. Because I looked at a bunch of pictures of it. It, it does beg the question, what constitutes a waterfall? It, honestly, it's not dazzling. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't want to disparage Latvia's sites, and the, the, uh, having been to Riga, it's a beautiful town, and I'm yeah. sure the Song of Dance Festival is incredible. Sure. Wide waterfalls I would not put on my brochure, if I'm honest. Hey, you could get yourself in a little basket and go off it, <laughs> say that you've survived. I'd go a over in a barrel, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a clonk. <laughs> it's about the height of a barrel. You can reach down and lower yourself down. Safely. People don't need to know that. You just say, I went over the falls. Widest, widest. <laughs> just stumble over the widest part. Yeah. There you go. People not paying attention will be impressed. Uh, let me tell you about the national drink of Latvia. Oh, please do. Black balsam. That sounds like a rock. It does, doesn't it? Uh, it's a kind of a herby, medicinally kind of drink. It's okay. uh, from a recipe crafted 260 years ago. Okay. Apparently, there are only two people in the world, the master distiller and his apprentice, who know how to make it. 
How do they make it? Uh, I'm not one of those two people, so I'm afraid <laughs> I cannot enlighten you with that. Yeah. My application is in. I'm yeah. uh, hoping to go straight into master distiller. I know that some people like that sort of stuff, right? Uh, what is it, the kernel secret recipe yeah. and this sort of stuff? I don't like that. You don't what? You're an open source guy. I want I want to know what's in my food before I'm consuming. Well, the ingredients are known. It's the process, I guess. My guess is it's distilled and then they throw in the rest of the ingredients. Yeah, but that <laughs> just means they could be like, you know, mixing it in the back of the, the boot of their car with a bunch of oil and God knows what. It's the process, Ryan. You've got to trust the process. I do not trust the process. It comes in a clay bottle. That is awesome. Yeah. It's made from 24 all-natural ingredients, including 17 botanicals. Okay. Including valerian. That sounds like a fantasy novel. Yeah. Wormwood. A character from a fantasy novel. Black pepper and ginger. Sexy video. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it sounded like a pair of like sidekicks, like little mongoose sidekicks or something. No, sexy video. Gentian. Might be Gentian, I'm not sure. Okay. Peruvian balsamic oil. Yeah, I like that one. Yeah. And then a bunch of others, I'm not going to list them all. It's won more than 100 awards at international fairs. Well, is it, it tasty? In, like, do people like it or is well, it medicinally? It comes in five fruity flavours, oh. uh, but it uh, has original. And as we know, original is usually not very nice. The worst. <laughs> <laughs> but they do claim huge health benefits. It can do absolutely everything for you. Definitely got a medicinal reputation. Do you drink it in shots or as a, like a full pint or what? Well, I think there's only one way to find out. Oh, no. <laughs> Have you been to Lavia? I have here a bottle of Riga Black Balsam. It's a beautiful bottle. It's really nice, isn't it? Like genuinely, that is a stunning bottle. It looks like a bottle from 1750. Yeah, and it's you can give it a tap, you can hear the clayiness of it. Yeah, it's definitely clay. I love it. Right, I'm going to open it up. So while you're struggling to open that, I also want to tell you one last thing about the general uh, Latvian region. And this is really unconnected to anything, but I just wanted to tell you about it because it made me laugh so hard. There's a book, a children's book, a Latvian children's book, sadly not available in English. Uh, It's known in translation as Savage Pies. I'm sorry? Savage Pies. In English or in Latvian? That's the English translation. There is a Latvian word for it that I'm not going to try and pronounce. (laughs) Uh, It's a series of children's books about pirates, so far so normal. Yeah. But everybody, all the characters, are pies or food. Uh, that sounds great. So this is this is the English translation of the blurb on the book itself, or the original book, I guess. In the harbour city of Mersel, the wild pirates of the South Sea, with their terrifying leader, Mordan at the helm, has abducted the wonderful poppy seed pastry, Eloise. Two young men, Eclair and Croissant, are on their way to free the kidnapped girl, and the adventure begins. Fights with the blood sausage bandits, adventures in the prison of sausages, <laughs> in the asylum of pies, Tortilla Island and more. Tortilla Island? Tortilla Island. In this wide world of patissier, yeah. <laughs> where everyone is acting only in accordance with their filling and cooking method. <laughs> And uh, the redditor who kindly got that translation for me, Schlaffer, said of it, the translation might not really be the best style or completely accurate, but even the original is nightmarish. Wow, (laughs) nightmarish. So that's something to read to your children, uh, Attack of the Jam Tarts or something similar. At the end of the the story, do do they find peace? <laughs> no, didn't like that. All right. <laughs> they lived happily leavened after.
Okay, so with that uh, aside, which bought you a bit of time to pour the black balsam. It's really black. It's, uh, I thought it would be I don't know, thicker, like a syrupy kind of stuff, but it's I not. I thought it's, it was going to be too. It's, it, it is, is super dark, isn't it? It's really dark. It looks like flat cola and smells like medicine. Oh, it does, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah, it's got notes of greenery. <laughs> All right, here we go. It's good for which you. Which it is, right? right? It's good for you. That's good drink. Correct. I love it. Okay. Give it a go. Yeah, I mean... Hints of licorice, I would say. Oh, it's warming the insides now. I don't love that. It's got that medicine-y <laughs> herbiness to it, hasn't it? And they just drink this socially. I've seen it described as the national drink of Latvia, but this is it's not a session drink, is it, by any means? I wonder if it's no. uh, one that everyone's got in their cupboard, but really they just want a lemonade. Because <laughs> they went through the airport and needed to buy something. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> a gift for someone. Yeah. So there you go. Whatever ah. ails you, Ryan, is going to be clean dried up now. Ah, thank you so much, Peter. Yes. Ah. <laughs> That's quite something. I love the bottle. Yeah, it's great. It's beautiful, isn't it? It so. really is beautiful. That's going up on the website, hhepodcast.com. Okay, Ryan, let's talk about the history of Latvia. Let's get you oriented in time. We know where we are in space now, but let's get in time. So the okay. first human settlers were in the Paleolithic age, 11,000 to 12,000 years ago. You might describe them as? Paleolithic. Early man, I was going to go oh, with. Oh, right. <laughs> These are hunter-gatherers using basic stone tools. You know the, you know the deal. I do. 2000 BC, the ancient Baltic people arrive. Okay. And they settle the area and uh, they become part of a trading route for that uh, goes between Varangia, so where the, where the Vikings live, down to Greece. So they become quite an important trading hub, in, particularly in uh, the sort of uh, area in the mouth of the river in Latvia. And when was this again? This is sort of Romany times coming. Okay. So Roman, Greeky, turn of the millennium. <laughs> yeah. So they uh, become quite successful and relatively wealthy. Then in the 10th century, you start to see states to form. So that was just sort of settlements and populations, but then states start to happen. They are the Curonians, the Latgalians, the Salonians, the Semigalians. I don't know what happened to the full Galians. <laughs> but sort of tribes that become countries, as, as was happening kind of in throughout Europe really at this time. Yeah, I guess so. They're sort of coming together. Now, interestingly, as an area, they held out against Christianity for quite a long time. Hmm. In fact, of all of Europe, these guys were the last to become Christian. And when it happened, it wasn't particularly peaceful either. Have you ever heard of the North Northern Crusades. No, never. Neither had I. No. I was really astonished to find that what happened in the between the 1200s and the 1500s, there was a bunch of monarchs, exactly the same as happened in the Holy Land. Mm-hmm. A bunch of monarchs said, oh, we don't want all these pagans in the north. Let's go get them and forcibly convert them. Wow. And the Northern Crusades was the same as the Crusades in the Holy Land, but in the Baltic. A bit colder. I know. It's, I'd never heard of it. I was really surprised. They should have called it the Cold Crusades. Have a word with marketing, those guys. Yeah. <laughs> so by the end of the 1200s, partly as a result of the Crusades, the Germans were basically in charge of the whole region. I mean, were they successful? Oh, yeah. It took a while, but they converted everyone to Christianity, ultimately. Right. Wow. That's I did not know that. Yeah. I'm just shocked that I'd never heard of this, and mm. it, was, uh, it seems quite important. Around 1282, Riga becomes part of the Hanseatic League. This is a trading and defense alliance of northern towns. So a bit of an EU meets NATO yep. for the Middle Ages. 
And uh, all in all, what's known as the German period, when Germany was the sort of lead power in this area, lasts between about the end of the 1100s to the mid-1500s. Then the area becomes known as Livonia, which we have come across before, I think, when we were talking about the Gambia. Livonia being a, essentially a mash-up area of Latvia and Lithuania. So that area as a whole was known as Livonia. You can see where Latvia is coming in. Yes. And the, the difficulty the Latvians have is that it's one of those centrally Eastern European places that is passed from empire to empire as people become dominant. So there's a period of rule by Polish Lithuanians, followed by a period of rule by the Swedish. And Swedish Livonia goes for about 100 years. And during this time, Latvia is known as the Swedish breadbasket because they supply a lot of wheat to the Swedish kingdom. Then the Russians show up, as as will happen in that area. So Peter the Great has a war with Sweden and he captures Riga in 1710 and then Russia develops control over the area. Okay. 1812, Napoleon arrives. His army comes up towards Riga as part of his attack on Russia. And the Russian governor general of Riga, he decided an important thing to do by way of defence was to set fire to the suburbs of his city. Okay. I mean, it's a bold strategy, isn't it? Yeah, so I don't know whether it was to remove potential cover or whether it was just to, I don't know, confuse them. But... Yeah, I think it's confusing. It's a scare tactic, right? If he's willing to do that to his own people... Then, good lord, this man's a maniac. Well, yeah. it, worse than he intended, because I guess the way they executed it was so uh, amateurish that the prevailing winds were all in the wrong direction and they end up accidentally burning down quite a lot of Regan uh, houses. I mean, I guess that was always a risk. Yeah, very much so. So thousands of the city residents were rendered homeless by this uh, this approach. Right. And the Russians did not attack Riga. Well, no, I guess they didn't need to. <laughs> well, I suppose, yeah. So I don't know whether you would call that a success. stood on the hill looking down going, <laughs> what? Job done, I guess. <laughs> Yay, we win. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So whether it was just pure confusion or they never intended to attack Riga is not super clear to me. But uh, in any event, it wasn't great news if you were a Regan. Yeah. Can you declare victory at that point? Probably not. And so I declare this session of the Latvian Parliament open. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, I'd like to congratulate everybody on the tremendous success against Napoleon, who turned tail and fled the minute he saw our resolve as we burned our city to the ground. Well done, everybody. <laughs> now, on to new business. Schools are in dire need of new history textbooks. Suggestions? Oh, well, uh, we could burn the schools to the ground. Perfect. The students can be out in the world, living history as it happens, instead of cooped up in the classroom. <laughs> Next, the hospitals are horribly underfunded. Any ideas? Well, how about we burn them to the ground? Of course. You can't have an underfunded hospital if you don't have a hospital at all. I love it. <laughs> and now, the orphanage is horribly crowded with poor, suffering orphans. What is to be done? Well, have we considered, and I'm just spitballing here, burning it to the ground? Brilliant! No more orphans, no more orphanage. That is a 100% reduction in overcrowding. Problem solved. Good work. <laughs> I agree with this vote. And now, our final matter for today. The latest report says there has been an increase in corruption at the highest levels of government, and that we, the Parliament, have lost the faith of the people. What shall we do? Well, I mean, if Parliament is the problem, I, I suppose there's only one thing we can do. Quite so. Gentlemen, it's it's been an honor. Into 
the mid-19th century, we've got stirrings of a Latvian identity, what's known as the Latvian National Awakening. But then in the 1880s and 90s, uh, the Russians, who are still in control of this area, uh, embark on a campaign of Russification. That means they suppress the Latvian language, they suppress Latvian customs, Russian becomes the official language of administration, although to be fair, the previous administration language was German, not Latvian. Mm. But being Latvian is not something that is encouraged, it's everyone's Russian. So, like what, you're punished if you start speaking your own language? Yeah, I guess so. Okay. Uh, 1905, Russian Revolution, comrade. World War One happens, as we know. Wait, Germany attacks. A world war. A world war. The whole world <laughs> gets involved. But then we've still got the rise of the idea of Latvian statehood. And in 1918, the People's Council proclaimed the independence of the Republic of Latvia. Okay, so that's when it really when it first emerges. Well, yes. Uh, actually, then in December of that same year, Soviet Russia invaded Latvia. Ah. <laughs> but they did actually recognise independent Latvia in 1920. Okay, so, so they had a little run of independence right. from 1920, and then World War II happens. Ah, so in 1940, and Latvia has some very interesting history, and it's not really appropriate for this podcast, but I think in the mm. verdict I'd like to bring it back. But in 1940, the Soviet Red Army moves into Latvia. So they're not invading. They're moving into Latvia to protect them uh, because the Germans are coming. So you've got the Nazis and the Soviet Russians. Okay. So Latvia is essentially sandwiched between two very... Uh, Were they invited in? Well, there were some elections wherein the Latvians applied for admission into the Soviet Union. Okay. Free and fair elections, I didn't say. (laughs) There were some elections whilst the Soviet Red Army were in town. And the vote was, let's be part of the Soviet Union. But it didn't really matter because actually they got incorporated into the Soviet Union on August the 5th, 1940. In less than a year, they were no longer under Soviet control. This is a good news, bad news situation because they'd been occupied by Nazi Germany. Oh, I see. So right. This is the proverbial rock and a hard place for poor old Latvia. Wow. This is a tough time, isn't it, if you're Latvian? If, you, if you're like a native of Latvia during this period, you don't know whether you're coming or going. What language are you speaking today? Exactly. Who's running the show? Who, what language am I speaking? Who's in charge? It's, uh, and you're just squashed between two not very pleasant regimes at that. Yeah. So the war lasts, obviously, until 1945. The Soviet Union, as we know, make a big comeback, as it were, in the war. Germany loses the war and uh, Latvia becomes part of the Soviet Union again, okay. uh, which is good news in that the Nazis are defeated, but bad news in that they have all of the experience of the Soviet Union. Mm. So you've got Stalinist purges, forced collectivization, and also very specific to the Baltic area, not just Latvia, the whole of the Baltics had this. I talked about Russification. There's kind of two events of Russification. There was that cultural thing that I talked about before. Yeah. But the Russification that the Soviet Union implemented after the war was much more literal in that they deliberately moved thousands and thousands of Russians and Belarusians into Latvia to essentially dilute the Latvian population with people of Russian ethnicity, Mm -hmm. which if we go back to the beginning when I said it's 60% Latvian, 30% Russian, that is the source of how this came about. So what actually happened was the Russians then became... Uh, were kind of the preferred ethnicity, as I understand it, during this period. But then, later, even though they were the minority, they're the minority, but they're the minority in charge, essentially. Mm. Uh, so there is a long, long history of uh, tension between the Latvian ethnic Latvians and the Russian ethnic Latvians, as they are today. Sure. Uh, so they limit the Latvian language again. They teach and administer in Russian. So before the war, Latvia was seventy-seven percent ethnic Latvian. By nineteen eighty-nine. 52%. Okay, so, so it's a quite a drop, isn't that's, it? That's And that's of your entire population. That is a massive change in your demographic. Yeah, I mean, you've got generational shift over that time as well. Like, o- over such a long period of time, you would expect the youth, who are now familiar with that, to be less aggrieved than perhaps their grandparents might be. But you've also got the Russians who are kind of 
they've been seen to be, have a preferential status as well. So there's the possibility for resentment right. building up as well. All in all, it's just a bit rubbish, isn't it's it? Tough, it's tough being a Latvian. Uh, yeah. Identity just becomes like this amorphous thing. How do you identify as yourself? I certainly, from my personal experience, which is purely anecdotal, there was very much a sense of there were Russian parts and Latvian parts, mm. and they were perceived themselves to be very different. But I can't believe that there aren't families who came together and people mm. were blending a lot better. And my visit was a long time ago. So yeah. <laughs> let's put that in context. But I'd be very interested to hear from any Latvians listening how it is today in terms of relationships between Russians and Latvians. We know they don't want to speak the Russian language that much, <laughs> that much at least we know. But anyway, the Soviet Union, as we know, starts to fall apart around the 1980s. Winds of change, Pete. The winds of change, exactly. And the Baltic nations decide to make this really remarkable symbolic effort in 1989. So on August the 23rd, 1989, Latvians, Lithuanians and Estonians joined hands. They formed a human chain of people that, mm-hmm. that went from Tallinn, Tallinn being the capital of Estonia, Riga, the capital of Latvia, and Vilnius, the capital of Lithuania. That's 600 kilometres of unbroken Baltic unity holding hands. Wait, what? Like, this really happened? Yeah. That's a lot of people. 600 kilometres of people. Wow. That becomes an, a really powerful symbol of the Baltic state's desire for independence and home security, I guess. So, in, How'd they coordinate that without the internet? Well, you just uh, find the end and, and tag on, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, but you'll never know. It's happening tonight. Things were different then. They were. Posters, I guess. I guess some sort of newsletter went around. Yeah. So 1990, the Latvian Supreme Council adopted a declaration restoring independence. And so May 4th is now considered Independence Day in Latvia. Uh, It actually took the Soviet Union 16 months further to recognise the independence, but they got there in the end. Good for them. So then Latvia actually joins the European Union and NATO in 2004. So they really transform from being part of the Soviet Union to a NATO member. That's a huge shift very quickly. They really, really came on board in rapid style. Mm. And today, it's a thriving modern Baltic nation. It's rated high in the Human Development Index, which measures income and education and life expectancy, to give a general sense of how advanced the country is. So they're doing well. Do people go there tourism-wise? They certainly do. One slightly unfortunate outcome for them was that they became quite a substantial destination for stag parties from the UK. Stag parties being bachelor parties, right? Yes, bachelor parties. of And UK bachelor parties being particularly well-known for being troublesome. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Sorry. So, that's it. Whistle-stop tour of Latvian history. I liked it. All right, so, Pete, I don't know what you're going to talk about next, but I thought I'd introduce it. Yeah, go on. <laughs> so, Pete, tell me about Hell or High Water. Well, I'm glad you asked that, Ryan. What a perfect segue that was. Was that right? <laughs> it really was. Hooray! <laughs> All right, let's break it down. Okay. Let's start I, I, with I want, Can I put on a cowboy hat and have some guns? No. Is it a cowboy-related reference? No. I feel like there's a cowboy film or something called Hell or High Water. It should be, shouldn't it? Right. Maybe it is. We'll, uh, we'll have to check that out. But... All right. Uh, let's start with hell. Hell, I've taken hell to be where the devil lives. Uh, and the devil, interestingly, in a Latvian myth, is not particularly evil. He's a relatively easily fooled character. He's, he's strong, but he's lazy. He's easily tricked. And he lives in a place that isn't really burning hell like we know it, but it's a kingdom in forests and rivers and graveyards. And he's a lot more like a fairy from what I could make out okay. uh, from my reading. Mischievous imp. Yeah, more of a, a trickster than a Satan. <laughs> Satan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not 
not like that. Okay. And of course, they have in Latvia regular Christian hell because of the Northern Crusades when everyone mm. became Christian. But that's hell. So let's move on. High water. Yeah. What's high water? We, not the waterfall. No, indeed. No, that's very low water. <laughs> we could be talking about flooding. Uh, we could be talking about high tide. But what do you find on high water, on the high seas in particular? Pirates. Pirates, of course. So in 2008, we're into our time period, mm. in Latvia, you could find the pirates of the sea. In Latvia? In Latvia. Is it near the sea? Well, it is by the Baltic Sea. Oh, yeah, um, okay. But these are the Pirates of the Sea, are Latvia's 2008 entry to the Eurovision Song Contest. Wait, what? <laughs> Congratulations, <laughs> Ukraine, by the way, on their recent victory in the Eurovision Song Contest. Absolutely. So this is a very apposite moment. Congratulations, Ukraine. Well done. But yes, the Pirates of the Sea were Latvia's 2008 entry. Just to give you a little flavour of the lyrics. Don't try to run. It's all set and done. There's treasure in sight. We are robbing you blind. I hope you don't mind. <laughs> 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 we're taking it all tonight. <laughs> were they dressed as various foodstuffs? Well, no, they weren't. They were dressed as pirates. But uh, here's a quote from the British newspaper, The Sun, taken from their article, Most Shocking Eurovision Performances. They described the song as a song as bad as it is ridiculous. Latvia must have wanted to capitalise on the recently finished Pirates of the Caribbean trilogy with this upbeat shanty. The Pirates of the Sea sourced their costumes from the nearest fancy dress shop. <laughs> That sounds all, this all sounds great to me. I have no problem with any of this. Right, and when you weren't magnetised to the weirdly intense main pirate, you could see their hats falling over their eyes. So I think we ought to have a little listen to the song is called Wolves of the Sea by Pirates of the Sea. This is one of the Eurovisionist songs ever. <laughs> Very upbeat pirates, they're having a lovely time. They're having a great time. <laughs> Catchy, isn't it? It's, it's upbeat. So that is Pirates of the Sea song, Wolves of the Sea. I love it. I was really hoping to track them down and get them to come and talk to us, but that I would have been miserably. Amazing. <laughs> but here's an amazing thing I found. Also during our time period, actual Latvian pirates. Uh, I want to come back to that, <laughs> but you didn't tell me how they fared oh, in the competition I'm so of Eurovision. Sorry. And I'm sitting here wondering whether they came last, first. What happened? They romped home. Yeah. 12th place. That's respectable. It's middle of the table. That's solid. 24 countries, right? Yeah, something like that. That's not bad. Yeah, and the UK gave them 10 points, so we were on on side with the Latvian entry. Yeah, some sort of political deal going on there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> 10 points. That's very generous. Was bit, <laughs> <laughs> right, I feel like I, I uh, stole your thunder there from a, a very eager little face that you had. Oh, it was a very valid interjection, though. So, mm -hmm. yes, I found some real pirates. Uh, right, tell me about real them. Real proper pirates on the Baltic Sea. Yar! So, Do they talk like that? <laughs> no, they talk like normal Russian, ethnic Russian Latvians. So the MV, which I assume means maritime vehicle or something, Arctic Sea, was a cargo ship going from Finland to Algeria with a Russian crew and a cargo of timber. Uh, <coughs> it's what? <laughs> <laughs> what? It's pirates. <laughs> How does timber fit in with that? Shiver my timbers. Oh, Oh, I see. Shiver me timbers. So, yes, they had a cargo of not yet shivered timbers. <laughs> <laughs> um, it travels through the Baltics. It comes through the Strait of Dover on the 28th of July, where they have a chat with the British Coast Guard. And that is the last known radio contact with the ship, which doesn't yeah. arrive at its scheduled port on the 7th of August. Where's the ship? It's vanished. Where'd it go? 
The Russian Navy sent ships from the Black Sea Fleet to search for the vessel. Okay. So then on the 14th of August, the ship is allegedly sighted off Cape Verde, that's off West Africa. Wow, that's quite far. Yeah. On the 17th of August, Russia's defence minister, Anatoly Sergikov, announced the ship has been found and seized. All 15 crew were alive and well, and they've been transferred to a Russian ship for questioning. Thank goodness. Now, they declared that the ship had been hijacked in the Baltic Sea by eight hijackers, four Estonians, two Latvians and two Russians, although all ethnically Russian. Mm -hmm. Now, here's the thing. According to the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea which I'm an avid reader, as you know. Sure, yeah. Piracy is a universal jurisdiction crime. It means that it can be prosecuted by a country even if the crime didn't happen in that country. So basically anyone can arrest them. But in this case, people arrested for piracy are tried according to the laws of the arresting country. Okay. So they get taken to Russia, basically. It then becomes a Russian crime. I'm not a maritime lawyer, but that's my my understanding. Cool. So then 11 of the crew members were returned to Moscow, where they were held in isolation and ordered to be questioned. Now, Russia doesn't explain why the victims here are basically imprisoned, but Mm. they do release them eventually, but with a gag order on the crew preventing them from talking about it. And that gag order came with a penalty of up to seven years in prison. Whoa. So this is all a bit weird, do you not think? It is a bit odd, yeah. So the Russians said that the hijackers had pretended to have an engine problem in order to board the vessel, and then they'd hijack the place and said, go drive to West Africa. The hijackers, alleged hijackers, said that they did have engine problems, they'd run out of fuel, they were actually environmentalists out for a protest, and they had been stopped from leaving having been rescued by the ship and were essentially kidnapped. So on the 8th of September, the Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov made a statement saying that after a search, nothing suspicious has been found on the Arctic (laughs) Sea and the Maltese authorities, the ship was registered in Malta, could have a look sometime later. (laughs) Uh, On the 29th of October, the Russian Navy delivered the Arctic Sea to Malta where they were searched and they didn't find anything. Yeah. Uh, Six of the eight hijackers were sentenced to jail terms ranging from seven to 12 years. Okay. So none of this adds up, does it? What a peculiar situation. So what's really gone on here? Who wants to steal timber anyway? Well, it was a couple of million quid's worth. Uh, And they claim that a ransom was was requested, was asked for. Oh, okay. It's a confusing story and I I read quite a lot about this and no two versions seem to be the same anyway so the real question is what this what was really going on here and the answer is nobody actually knows it was a weird event it could have been a regular hijacking of the cargo for ransom and the (laughs) russians say that that's what it was okay but the ship's owners say they got no ransom demands what so then the question is why did russia send this more force from the black sea fleet for this one ship than they'd sent to deal with all of the piracy in somalia yeah what's going on pete well there's a theory that the ship was trafficking either anti-aircraft weapons or possibly cruise missiles Mm. to iran illegally and the hijackers were hired by Israeli intelligence to stop the cargo reaching Iran. This is a global conspiracy. It's, there is something going on here. And mm. tragically, I can't tell you what it is because nobody knows. But there's another version of events, which is the criminals were trafficking arms. This is kind of the common theory. Possibly rogue elements from Russia's own security services. And then when Russia realized what was happening, because it was their people, yeah. they staged the hijacking themselves <laughs> to cover it up and then get rid of all the stuff and the evidence and just go, oh, look it's just a regular hijacking it's just a regular piracy thing so the only thing we're certain of is the Russian journalist Mikhail Voitenko who had challenged the Russian version of events in his reporting Mm. on the 3rd of September 2009 was reported had quit his job and fled Russia after an unidentified caller called him in the night and warned him he was quote stepping on the toes of some serious people whoa and to this day, it remains a mystery on high water. That's good. None of it adds up. And, you know, I like a conspiracy that ends in a neatly packaged explanation. There is nothing on this. It's just a weird event that we will never know what happened, maybe. Mm. But I thought you'd enjoy it because it's creepy and weird. Mm. Hey, Pete. Hey, Ryan. 
So I've decided I want to be a pirate. Oh, do you? Yeah, I want to sail the seven seas. I want to climb the rigging, sit in the crow's nest. I want to place at the captain's table, eating seeds and nuts and fruit. I want to watch people walk the plank. I want to board enemy ships. I want to fly from shoulder to shoulder. Wait, what? I want to say all the cool things like pieces of eight and who's a pretty boy then? And pretty Polly, pretty Polly. Do you want to be a pirate or a parrot? Why? What did I say? You said pirate. Yeah. Well, now I'm really confused. But that's all a bit of fun. That's breaking down hell or high water. But what does hell or high water really mean? It's usually in the complete phrase, come hell or high water, where you say, I will achieve something come hell or high water, meaning I will just get it done. The first printed reference is believed to be an American phrase. So maybe you are allowed your cowboy hat. I am. Uh, the first reference comes from an Iowa newspaper, the Burlington Weekly Hawkeye. Oh, Great wow. name for a newspaper. Uh, in 1882, in which they say, the devil had broke loose in many parts of the country. And keeping up with the old saying, we've had unrevised hell and high High water and a mighty heap of high water, I tell ya. I tell ya. I tell ya. <laughs> uh, that doesn't really speak determination to me, but I think today it is fair to describe come hell or high water as a phrase meaning you're willing to do whatever it takes to overcome difficulty or obstacles. Yeah. Or in one word, determination. Absolutely, yeah. So I'm going to share with you some stories about Latvian determination from 2005 to 2010. All right, fine. Right, first though, I'm going to give you a little bit of context because what was happening is quite a key few years in Latvian history and determination was a much needed commodity in Latvia in these years because basically it's the years of the financial crash and there's a fair amount of corruption going on as well. So I'm going to give you a quick bit of uh, 2005 to 10 history so that you understand what's going on when I describe what the determination stories are all about. Right. So in 2007, there was a very popular president Vira Vika Freeberger who term ended and was replaced by Valdis Zatlas. Right. He was a doctor and in his time as a doctor it was alleged that he got a lot of private envelopes of extra pay from his patient which was a kind of illegalish uh, activity although they say some say that everyone was at it. Uh, certainly a grey area but it was emblematic of the way Latvian society was working at that time some people felt. So there was corruption in everyday life I suppose. Okay. 2008 Ivars Lembergs, the mayor of Ventspils was suspended and arrested on charges of corruption. 2008 was the bad year. This is when the global financial crash hit, but when it hit, it really hit Latvia hard. So in 2008, the Latvian economy took one of, if not the sharpest downturn in the world. In the last quarter of 2008, their GDP contracted 10.5%. Whoa. In 2009, February, the government asked the IMF and the European Union for a bailout loan of 7.5 billion euros. This Mm. is a country of 2 million people. 7.5 billion euros to nationalise their bank, the Parex Bank, which was the country's second largest bank. So think Northern Rock if you're in Mm. the UK. So these are all things that were happening. It wasn't like Latvia was unique in the, the global financial crash. It happened everywhere. But Latvia really copped it. In December 2008, the unemployment rate for Latvia was 7%. One year later, 22.8%. Yeah, you see, that's the real stat for me. That's where you've got a lot of real people in real hardship. People are getting cheesed off. Sufficiently so that on January the 13th, 2009, in a rally calling for the end of a government, yeah, becomes a riot yeah. calling for the end of the government. Some people try and storm the Saima, which is the parliament building. And then by February 2009, the cabinet's dissolved and the president's resigned and a new government comes in, basically. 
because of the riots and because of the pressure or the whole i mean the riots were a symptom it wasn't okay. the one-off riot top of the government it right. was that everyone was cheesed off and it became unsustainable and it's mm. uh, i think it was a coalition government as well so it was very difficult to operate so essentially what you're talking about is years of financial hardship a sense of corruption and unfairness and uh just unpleasantness really so that's the context that I wanted to give you because we're going to talk about determination and uh, some specific people who did some specific things okay. and would not be held back by this situation that they found themselves. So these are stories of determination and the first one is determination to expose corruption. Here we go. In 2010, police raid the home of a journalist called Ilza Nagla and they take her personal drive of memory sticks and hard drive, all the computers basically. And they were in search of evidence apparently of the notorious hacker known only as Neo. What, for real? For real. He was like in, in The Matrix? He was actually named after the character from The Matrix, so okay. he was a hacker. So he was apparently the leader of the activist group, the 4th National Reawakening Army. Oh, I bet he thought he was so cool. Scary man. His crime? Yep. He published the salaries of public transport company Regus Satixme on his Twitter profile, revealing that the tough austerity measures that everyone else was undergoing, doctors and teachers' salaries have been cut by 40%, did not apply to a lot of the public sector employees. He found uh, that actually a lot of people were doing very well in these hard times. And consequently, he went, I'm going to publish these, and he published them. So he was cool. He was very cool. He downloaded 7.4 million documents, tax declarations of public officials, and public, I don't think he published Mm. all of them, but he published, look at these people, they're doing fine whilst cutting everybody else's incomes. Yeah. So Neo this became... This is a dangerous thing to do. It was a dangerous thing to do, but he became something of a folk hero. He's a kind of a Robin Hood character for these sure. guys. So who was this notorious outlaw? Mr. Anderson. <laughs> it turns out he's a man called Ilmars Poikans. Oh. He's 31-year-old. He was a researcher Mr. at the... Mr. A- Poikans. <laughs> Surprised to see me. Very Surprised. <laughs> <laughs> he was a researcher at the AI laboratory at the University of Latvia's Institute of Mathematics and Information Scientists. Sounds like the kind of guy that would know about hacking. Yeah, he was a smart guy. He spoke to the press and he said, there's no fourth national reawakening army or anybody else. I acted alone. I don't plan to go into politics. I did this because I want my children and grandchildren to live in a normal country. That is the only reason. Wow. So the public took him to their hearts, unsurprisingly. He was voted by the public as Latvian's European of the Year for 2010. Oh, that's excellent. And Ilza Nagler, the journalist who was uh, raided, said his bravery and selflessness are characteristics the public are yearning for. If this story ends with him mysteriously being thrown from a window or something, I'm <laughs> going to be very upset. Well, he, when he was arrested, he could have uh, been charged with as much as 10 years in prison for yeah. his activities. So the case actually drags on for years. But in November 2015, Riga Regional Court sentenced him to 100 hours of community service. Service. Good. That's fine. Fine, but it gets better. December 18th, 2017, Ilmar's Poikans, the man who not only took the red pill, but gave the red pill to everybody else, yeah. uh, he was granted a presidential pardon. Oh. And the pardon said, even though Ilmar's Poikans had violated the law, the public gain from his actions has far surpassed the harm. It's a tricky thing, isn't it? Because he did break the law. He did. Right? But what if he'd leaked something else? What if he had had a more malevolent side to him? Ah, but he didn't. But he, he was didn't. a hero. He was a hero. Ilmar's Poikans, I salute you. Mr. Poikan. <laughs> Do not try and bend the spoon. That's impossible. Instead, only try to realize the truth. What truth? There is no spoon. So Poikans is not the only Latvian determined to tackle corruption. 
I've got a new one for you. In 2005, Eric Jakobsons was Latvia's Minister of Interior. He was born in 1959 in Riga, which at the time was part of the Soviet Union. At age 18, he was studying at the Riga Sports Academy. He got conscripted into the Soviet Army. Oh. He was a sporty guy, unsurprisingly, studying at the Sports Academy. He gets assigned to the Spetsnaz. That's the Russian or Soviet Special Forces. Oh, okay. So he did two years there. But then he wants to look for more meaning in his life. So apparently the KGB tried to recruit him. But he's like, no, I'm not interested in working for the KGB. And instead, he becomes A, a martial artist. He starts his own martial arts school. B, he becomes religious. He becomes ordained as a Lutheran minister. Kung Fu minister. Kung Fu minister. And C, he joined the Latvian underground resistance. And he's teaching illegal religion classes. Because obviously, Soviet Union religion is more than frowned upon. So this leads to the KGB allegedly trying to discredit him by labelling him a dissident and an enemy of the state. They call him the Latvian Rambo. Very cool. Just <laughs> super cool. And accuses him of creating, quote, an army of holy fathers and combat priests. We like all of these. Right, things. this sounds like they're in, in his marketing department yeah. not trying to discredit him. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why yeah. I say allegedly try and discredit him because <laughs> it sounds like they're doing him a favour. So he becomes a very active dissident. He earns another nickname, the Boxing Priest. It's not bad. They could have called him Rocky or something, right? <laughs> The Latvian Rambo, for goodness yeah. sake. So uh, he becomes a bit of a folk hero again. At one point, he gets interviewed by Peter Jennings on ABC World News Tonight about the problems in Latvia, and that earns him immediate expulsion from the Soviet Union for him and his entire family. Wow. Just for an interview? Yeah. Immediate expulsion, like well, in a juxta seat. Certainly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they don't haul him out. No, he gets to go to the train station. Apparently, thousands of Latvians cheer for him at the train station when he goes yeah. off, and he goes to the US. That's a bittersweet moment, I, I imagine. No, imagine that. I'm a hero, but bye, everyone. Mm. So he opens a gym in Chicago where he said... I share what I learned. I tell students there are champions out there who are losers because they're not gentlemen. And there are others who never become champions, but they are winners because they have a warrior's heart. Wow. Isn't that beautiful? That was really cool. So he truly had a warrior's heart because in 2001, he goes back to Latvia and he becomes involved in politics. He was allowed back? Yeah, because the Soviet Union falls apart and Latvia oh, becomes course. independent. Right, right, right. So he comes back. So, yeah, yeah, I'm back, guys. He forms a new party called the First Party of Latvia. The, could have called it the Rambo Party. It would well, have been better. Done, but, yeah. <laughs> but uh in in 2004, he becomes the Minister of the Interior for Latvia. So he becomes a fairly substantial politician. Well, I guess if he's got like the public support in the way that he had, politics is a pretty good way to go, I guess. Exactly. So he directs his country's law enforcement and intelligence services, the successors to the KGB, so Latvian Secret Services, I guess. And he takes a hard line against Russia, against the mob, against oligarchs. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> I know. Surprising, right? Uh, so then in 2005, he got really annoyed with the Latvian government because in October 2005, the Latvian Prime Minister Igars Kalvitis signs a decree placing a man called Boris Berezovsky on the list of persona non grata. So people not welcome in Latvia. Okay. Boris Berezovsky was an outspoken critic of the Russian regime. Mm -hmm. And basically it's thought that the Russians put a load of pressure on the Latvian government and the Latvian government said, oh no, we can't have this guy here because the Russians don't like him. And this annoyed um, our man, the <laughs> Latvian Rambo. So basically he resigns. He didn't say, he didn't formally say in protest, but all of the newspaper articles I read, everyone knew it was because of the way they treated Berezovsky. Yeah, people are able to sort of read through that sort of stuff, aren't they? Exactly. So the news articles are like, he said it was because he wasn't getting funding, but everyone knows it's because they let Berezovsky get turned into persona in grata. Mm. So he, a man of great integrity to the end, he resigns his post in protest. So now I uh, just looked up where he is today and he mm. is now residing in the USA. He's the CEO at Cultural Bridges International. So I guess if you've got a bit of spare cash and want some international conflict resolution consulting from the Latvian Rambo, yeah, go get it. <laughs> He's that out there. Amazing. <laughs> so once again, another mighty Latvian with um, 
great determination who, come hell or high water, would do the right thing. Don't push it. Don't push it, I'll give you a war you won't believe. Let it go. Let it go. Okay, we're going to take a little light-hearted break now. Okay. Uh, this is, uh, it's a bit of a stretch, I'll be honest, but this is determination to get ahead in life because there was a young man called Andres Ciroulis who was a, he became, uh, he went to Chef College in 2001 in Latvia. Chef College. Chef College. All right. He went out into the labor market and these are the hard years. So he leaves and over time, I'm uh, shortcutting various things, he comes to the UK where after working with various jobs, he starts a company, Latvian Baked Goods. Oh, nice. Now, as you know, Ryan, come hell or high water, I'll make sure you've got something delicious in a podcast. So I travelled oh all the way Lord. north to Tottenham. <laughs> uh, I travelled to Tottenham to meet him and purchase for you some typically Latvian fare. Give me food, please. <laughs> all right, let's try it. That sounds great. Okay, so Ryan, I have here mm-hmm. some Latvian baked goods. <laughs> Yay! Yeah. You gave me insects, I bring you buns, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> okay, here we go. Ooh, okay. Take that whole smorgasbord of goods there. Wow, this is amazing. There are one, two, three, four, five different pastries on here. Okay, so we're going to take these in order. Okay. And tell you what they are, and uh, you can have a munch and tell us what you're, what you're seeing, what you're tasting. Oh, I'll munch. So we're going to start off with uh, that one there. Okay, it looks like a crescent moon. So this is piragi. This is a bread roll that's like filled brioche. with bacon and onions traditionally. They're uh, usually made for special occasions and celebrations. So at the winter solstice or the summer solstice, Christmas, you'd have you'd roll out the roll out the buns, the piragi. Roll out the buns. So Can I try? Um, oftentimes, yeah, absolutely. So often families will have their own special recipe that's passed down from generation to generation. And you'll notice the dough's got a little bit, there's a little sweetness to the dough, which is characteristic. It's like a brioche. Yeah, exactly. It's very characteristic of the doughs of the area. And you especially find this in Zimasvetki, which is an annual festival observing both the winter solstice and the birth of Jesus. It's very good. So next we're going to try the bouillon pie. Okay. This is triangular shaped flaky pastry with sesame seeds on top. And inside you will find uh, it's a beef filling. Hmm. These are a lot more meatier than I was expecting. Yeah, well, we're starting with the savoury. We will move on to the sweet. There is a dessert, if you will. Yeah, it looks like a hamburger. It looks like um, all ground beef. Yeah, so inside. they'll often have this with, a, I guess, a beef drink, like a bovril kind of uh, thing. Really? Yeah, I don't believe so. Hmm. Oh, that's tasty. Yeah, it's very good. Okay, so both of those you can find really broadly in Eastern Europe. So they're Latvian, but you will find versions of them really throughout uh, Eastern Europe and uh, Central Europe as well. More specific Latvian, specifically Latvian, according to my source, is uh, the next one, which is this one here. This is a caraway seed bun. Caraway seed isn't something I think I have very much of. No, it's a, it's a curious thing. Caraway seeds are um, slightly aniseedy. There's a, supposedly an aniseedy flavour to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the texture of this is like a scone or a scone. So this, I'm told, is, is super Latvian rather than being more generally East European. Mm, yeah, it's, it's tasty. It's um, dry. Are you getting the anise type flavour out? 
very subtly. Okay, and the final thing we have, this is a honey cake. Mm. This is, again, relatively common in the region rather than being specifically Latvian, which you would expect for quite a small country. All right, so this one, it's crumbly. It's like a caramelised brown. Yeah, so this is well known for being super complicated to make as well. It's a real palaver making one of these, apparently. I was expecting something crunchier or with more bite. Is it cream in there? It's got sour cream in it and honey, obviously, sour cream and uh, sugar. That's really tasty. Very subtly sweet. Quite subtle, isn't it? It's not like, it doesn't blast you with sweetness, does it? So there you have it. Those are Latvian baked goods from Andris at Latvian Baked Goods. Amazing. So tasty. Right, so now back to real stories in 2005 to 2010. And now I'm going to talk to you about the determination to keep everyone cheerful in the teeth of the horrible years that were 2005 to 2010. Okay. So I like that. That's good. Exactly. 31st of May 2010, the Baltic Times newspaper reports blondes take to the streets in Riga. Tell me more. Well, 800 blondes turned out in a special event organised by the Latvian Association of Blondes. Mm. It wasn't a protest like the riots over the economy and corruption, but it was just to cheer people up. If this turns out to be golden Labradors or something. No, these were almost, if not all, entirely female ladies. They wore the dress code. Everyone was wearing pink and white. So it's basically like a Barbie invasion. Yeah, wow. Marika Gaderte, who organised the event and I believe was also head of the Latvian Association of Blondes, said, I was so tired every day reading the newspapers and just reading about problems. We decided, let's do something nice. And I asked myself the question, what can I do for my country? <laughs> and this is what I did. That's what she settled on. That's she amazing. decided a march of the blondes was the answer. Yeah. So this event started in 2009. It was supposed to be a one-off. Yeah. But uh, it was very popular. (laughs) Who knew? Uh, It proved so popular, they kept going for three years, and it became the Go Blonde Festival. Only three years? I'm surprised to hear that it's not still going now. It was too, actually. Uh, They had parties and concerts and a Marilyn Monroe lookalike competition, Mm -hmm. and they raised money for Latvian charities. And it kind of grew. 2009, about 500 blondes were marching through the streets. By 2010, it was about 800. By 2011, 500 people just outside. Latvia had registered to join the event so got pretty pretty tasty Wikipedia notes quite casually of the final march in 2011 around a thousand people lined the route mostly men Now, 2011 was the last one, uh, possibly because by then, I haven't mentioned this before, but the economic situation was actually looking up. Things got better pretty quick after the tough times of the latter part of our time period. And sadly, I did look quite hard, as you can imagine. I can find no current record of the Latvian Association of Blondes. Ah, So, So time to reprise it? Well, I mean, I, I, I'd like to think other hair colours are available. We work in a rainbow world now, Ryan. That's very true. All are welcome. Darling, are you okay in there? Uh, Yeah. It's just you've been in there a long time. Yeah, I'm just doing normal bathroom activities. Uh Uh-huh. Are you practicing for the marching blondes? Yeah. Okay. Well, look, don't forget that the Johnsons are coming over tonight. Okay. And I do need you to run to the store to pick up a few things. All right. And you did promise to take the trash out. Okay, God. All right, all right, love. I'll leave you in peace. Okay. Whoa, looking good, girls. Uh, Ooh, ladies. Nice. (laughs) 
Uh, and I have one other story of determination for you today, Ryan. Wow, I am spoiled with stories of determination today. Now, this is another march, but this is a much more serious affair. Okay. So, serious face on. Serious face on. 2005 was the year, the very first gay pride march in Latvia. Okay. So this is, couldn't get a greater contrast to the parade of blondes. It wasn't a ha ha ha, this is fun. This was a very serious affair. So attitudes to homosexuality in Latvia were not what we would have called progressive by any means. So when the first gay pride parade took part, to be part of that, you had to be a courageous person. They knew it was going to be hard. It was not a parade that was going to be welcomed by the establishment. Prime Minister of Latvia, Agars Kalvitis, publicly opposed the event, calling it a mistake. But they got a permit to march. A few days before the event, permit got suddenly withdrawn. So the organisers took them to court. And a judge overruled the withdrawal and the event was allowed to take place. The deputy mayor of Riga, Juris Lujans, resigned in protest at the event going ahead. Transport Minister Einar Slessers was particularly vocal in his opposition, describing it as a parade of perversion. These are government representatives saying mm. this. So think how courageous you've got to be, having heard all of this, been told you can't do it, having to go to court to be allowed to be present as yourself on the streets. Nevertheless, these brave martyrs decided, come hell or high water, they will march their parade route and they would not be suppressed. Wow. So July 23rd, in Riga's old town, the marchers gathered. There were, I've seen a couple of reports, one says less than 100, one says a few dozen. So Oof. you're looking at not a huge number of people. Okay. On their parade route, waiting for them, over a thousand protesters... Oh, man. Showing up to oppose the event, waving extreme, or some of them waving extremist signs. There's also another 10,000 people just showed up to watch. Those thousand are specifically there to protest your event. So when they set off, protesters throw eggs and other stuff at them. So you're just trying to parade and you're getting stuff chucked at you. They try to physically obstruct the march, stop it going ahead, form human chains across the road. There's violent clashes with the police between the protesters and the police. The march had to be diverted from one of the larger groups of protesters, but they marched and they got to where they wanted to go, which is, I think, where they started, which is the Anglican Church. And there they had a service led by Maris Sants, who was a defrocked gay priest who'd been thrown out of the Lutheran Church. Again, hundreds of protesters gather outside, angrily shouting and denouncing the event. One newspaper reports, quote, the scene became so chaotic that the participants eventually had to be whisked away on a bus to escape the angry crowds. So that's, an, uh, that's a messy end, but they said they prayed and they did. Well, I hope they were happy with themselves, the well, protesters. at this point, it becomes very clear that something is amiss in some sections of Latvian society. So some members of the LGBT community, friends and family, found an organisation called Mosaica. This is an organisation to improve the tolerance for rights of LGBT rights in Latvia. And at this point, you know, that's the first one. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. So in 2006, the event took place again. This time it's known as a Riga Pride and Friendship Days. There's more mm. attempt to sort of educate people as to the fact that I guess there's no threat here, I suppose. Mm. Again, it was significantly disrupted by protesters who managed to really appropriately name themselves No Pride. Oh, quite. Wow. <laughs> I think you've sort of labelled yourself <laughs> accidentally there, haven't you? <laughs> But they weren't totally without support. President Vira Vika Freeberger, the popular president I described, stated that discrimination on any grounds, including sexual orientation, is unacceptable. The European Parliament expressed disappointment in the failure of Latvian authorities to protect the parade. 2007, 2008, the parade goes on again. 2009, the event becomes Baltic Pride. And at that point, it's an event shared with its Baltic neighbours. So it's held in alternating years in each country. 
So the most recent Baltic Pride held in Latvia was 2021, back in Riga. They had over 40 different events across what is now Pride Week. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, sadly, I'm not able to tell you that thousands of people marched because mm. it was a COVID period. So we didn't get that crowd event and 2020 it was cancelled completely. But I think a week, 40 events tells you that this is something that's growing and more... Well, uh, the fact it didn't stop after just the first one. Exactly. It's, it's still going. There's signs of life and hopefully it's a sign that everything's going to continue to improve for the people of Latvia, be they be LB. GTQ friends, supporters, or just anyone who believes in the freedom to be themselves. Yeah. So let's take a moment to salute those first brave souls. A few dozen people who walked out in thousands terrifying. of people who didn't want them to be there. They had the courage to stand up and walk in the teeth of opposition, and they wouldn't be told no, and they would be recognised. Come hell or high water. That was awesome. Oh, so that's really made me yeah. emotional. That. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> so that's it. Hell and high water in Latvia, two thousand five to two thousand ten. I hope you enjoyed it. I loved it. I, I genuinely didn't know where we were going to go with that. And I love the idea that you took the determination piece. There were some fantastic stories there and highly relevant. Um, I struggle still to see where determination fits in with me eating cakes, but I love eating cakes. So I'm not going to question that any further. That was clearly the weakest link in the piece. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I loved it, Pete. That was an amazing task. You've, you've done a grand job. Well done. Thank you. Right. Okay. Well, look, Pete, uh, the eyes of the HHE audience swivel in their sockets. They are swivel eyed, our <laughs> listeners. Yeah. Uh, and they are. <laughs> and they're goggling me. <laughs> <laughs> because you've done your job for a fortnight. It is now my turn. So I'm going to wheel out the Dursalator. Careful, don't scuff the carpet. Okay, yeah. All right, here we go. I'm going to switch it on. It's like music to my ears hearing that little fella fire up. Yeah, and unless it's your turn. Then and it's then a it's... horrible noise of nightmarish hell. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly that. <laughs> okay, Peter, if you'd like to push the button. Off we go, here we go. Your country is... Hong Kong. Okay, yeah, I like Hong Kong. Hong Kong, that sounds solid, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Your right. time period. Yeah. Oh, here we go. <laughs> 1200 to 1300 CE. Yeah, okay. Probably something there, isn't there? Right, I mean, sure. <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty decent time period. Yeah, I think, I think you're going to be okay. And right. your topic. Yeah. It's the jaws of death. I didn't what? even know that was in there. <laughs> Nor did I, actually. The Jaws of Death in Hong Kong during 1200 to 1300. I think the Dursleit has become sentient and it's starting to make its own thing categories up. Look, I think death happens everywhere. Uh, to everyone. At, at some point. Eventually. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll find something. Okay, so that is the show for this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the things that Pete has been talking about on this show, or just to say hello, you can absolutely do that, and you can reach out to us through our website at hhepodcast.com or by email at Pete and Ryan at hhepodcast.com. We would love to hear from you, and you never know, you could end up featured on a future show. Like? Celeste, a good friend of the show who is a religious listener. And Celeste, we have a challenge for you. We'd like you to contribute a fact about Hong Kong between 1200 and 1300 that we will use in the show next time. Sounds good to me. We're outsourcing this program. (laughs) (laughs) Now, if you're on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, you can find us at HHE Podcast and subscribe to them and you'll get a little ping alert when we post one-minute animated HHE bites, which are rather fun. They are. And we're going to be back again 
again very soon with The Verdict. But until then, a huge thank you to the very mighty pony-faced Peter. Thanks, Ryan. Can I put this saddle off now? (laughs) (laughs) Shut up and horsey. (laughs) (laughs) I guess all that's left to say is... You've been listening to... happened everywhere. Latvia, uh-huh, uh-huh, I like it, uh-huh, uh-huh. Latvia, uh-huh, uh-huh, I like it, uh-huh, uh-huh. Latvia, uh-huh, uh-huh, I like <coughs> Hello? Pete, are you okay in there? Y- yeah. It's just you've been in there a long time. Well, yeah, I'm just doing normal bathroom activities. Are you singing the Latvia song? Yeah. Okay, well, look, don't forget that we've got to record the podcast, okay? Okay. And I do need you to run out and go get us some beer. All right. And you did promise to take the recycling out. Okay, God. All right, all right, I'll leave you in peace. Okay. Latvia, uh-huh, uh-huh, I like it, uh-huh, uh-huh. Latvia, uh-huh, uh-huh, I like it, uh-huh, uh-huh. Latvia, uh-huh, uh-huh, I like it, uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, that's going to stay in your head. <laughs> Forever. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs>